Welcome to Defend the Faith Live. Defend the Faith Live is a Perusia podcast series where we join Dr. Robert Haddad to take a look at a chapter a month of Defend the Faith, Dr. Haddad's excellent book on Catholic apologetics, with host Matthew Herman Taig. In this episode, we cover the chapter on The Meritorious Value of Works. Defend the Faith Live is recorded online with a live audience in Perusia world. To be part of the live online audience during these recordings and to interact in the live member-only Q&A sessions that follow, please join us in Perusia World by visiting perusiamedia.com and clicking on Perusia World for all the information on how to join. Perusia Podcast is produced in partnership with EWTN Asia Pacific and Voice of Charity Radio Australia. Hello and welcome back to Defend the Faith Live. This is episode number five. We are doing chapter number five of this book, Defend the Faith, by our very good friend, Dr. Robert Haddad, who is with us this evening. Dr. Haddad, how are you today? Good, thank you, Matthew. Great to be here again. Indeed. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, but uh, as uh, as usual, I'm still very excited about this uh, this project, and so I'm raring to get going. Now, as I mentioned, we're on Chapter 5 of the book, Defend the Faith, and the title for this chapter is The Meritorious Value of Works. And of course, as we know, about 500 years ago, um, Martin Luther uh, was reading the Bible, and he read uh, in Ephesians, all right, something about faith and works. Okay, so if I can find it again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. And Martin Luther, of course, took that passage of Scripture to mean that we are saved by faith alone and works has nothing to do with it whatsoever. What say you, Dr. Robert Haddad? Well, that is the passage that is probably most often used in defense of the slogan or the mantra of faith alone. At first instance, when you hear it, it does give the impression that we're saved by faith, works have nothing to do with it. And if we claim that our works have something to do with our salvation, we are somehow proud and we are substituting Christ's work with with works of our own. But in actual fact, if we dissect the passage bit by bit, St. Paul is saying that we're saved by grace, not by faith, not by works. We are saved by grace. What's that grace? This gives us a clue as to what the true meaning of this passage is. We're saved by grace. We're saved by God's gift. What is God's gift that saved us? It is the complete work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's how we are saved as a humanity. So St. Paul's talking firstly about the objective salvation of humanity, uh, 
that was achieved by Jesus Christ on the cross, that act of redemption, that act of atonement that restored us as a humanity back into friendship with God. How then does each individual benefit from this grace of God that saved humanity? St. Paul is saying, and that comes in the next sentence, uh, our response is one of faith. So what's clear here in St. Paul's mind is that we're not saved as a humanity through any works humanity did either collectively or individually, were saved by the complete work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We get the benefit of that work initially through faith, okay? And what's not mentioned, and because and you quoted Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 9, is verse 10. Verse 10 is where St. Paul talks about how we must also, uh, in addition to the faith, that is necessary for initial justification. It's what uh, gets us locked into the grace of God, that is the, the cross of Christ. We must then live a faith out in works. We must live out a, a life of faith, hope, and love. And that's what we're called to, and that's what St. Paul refers to in verse 10. So that's the real understanding of this passage. We're not, there's the objective redemption is what St. Paul's talking about. We didn't achieve that. God achieved that through Christ. Then subjectively, how does each individual benefit? Initially through faith. And then when we're planted in faith, then we must grow in works of hope and love. And that's the, they're the types of works we're talking about, not the works of the law like circumcision and, and uh, ceremonial washings and dietary prescriptions, but really the works of love. And they're the works, and that's how we are meant to live out the commandments as laws of love. Yeah, I was once doing a Protestant Bible study on Ephesians, and of course this passage come, came up. And then, as you rightly say, um, verse 10 continues, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I asked the question, well, hang on, if you know, which, which is it? Um, if we're saved by faith alone, and if we're once saved, always saved, you know, why would we do good works? And the, the assistant minister responded, well, yeah, it's a very good and challenging question. And I would say it's simply because we are new creations and therefore designed for works. What would you say to that response, Robert? Well, what I hear and what I've heard in the past on a number of occasions is that the works are signs of salvation through faith alone, but they don't actually contribute to our being saved. They're just indications or public manifestations or evidence that we've been saved by faith alone. But in actual fact, the reality is, from the Catholic perspective, um, the works are God's works because he is the one who has, through grace, what we call prevenient grace, grace that comes first, he's inspiring us, enlightening our intellects, moving our wills he's inspiring us to do good works in faith and we respond freely 
to that grace. So God is the first mover. We are the responder. So there's a synergy going on here. We freely ex we, uh, say yes to the, the inspiration of God to do the good work or works. And those works are not simply signs that we've been saved through faith alone, but they actually are the necessary fruit that we must bear as people of faith. And that these works, once we li begin living out a life of faith, mm. uh, these works must be manifest. They must be fruits of our lives of faith in, in order to be saved. I will say this, we can we cannot be saved without faith, but we're not saved by faith alone unless we die immediately after uh, you know that initial act of faith, like the good thief on the cross. He came to faith in Christ. He couldn't do anything else afterwards. And Christ promised him, today you shall be with me in paradise. But if I was the good thief and I happened to be taken down from the cross and I had another 40, 50 years to live, I would have been required to obey the commandments and to live out that faith in love. And we've got plenty of quotes we can refer to to back that up. Mm. So what I'm sort of hearing here is that faith is really a doing word rather than something we think or feel. Is that correct? Well, it is a human action. Mm. It is a human action in response to God's grace. As I said earlier, God is the first mover. He enlightens the intellect then he moves our will to that act of faith. That is to believe in God, on the authority of God, even though we can't see him. But as Christian faith, it's to believe in Jesus Christ as the son of God who died, rose again, ascended into heaven, and now is alive, seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And that's the Christian faith. And of course, what's built on that is Catholic faith, where we believe that Jesus Christ founded the church, what is that church? It's the Catholic Church. Um, that is the bride of Christ that continues to work the work of Christ in the world to teach, govern, sanctify. And we must be prepared to embrace, to accept all the teachings of Christ's church. So, yes, yeah, so faith uh, uh, has certain dimensions, if I could say that. The initial faith uh, phase of believing in God, the second phase of believing in Jesus Christ, the third phase of believing in everything Jesus taught and what he established in the world. And then acting upon it, correct. So would it uh, be fair to say then that even the good thief demonstrates his faith, firstly, by turning to Christ and asking for forgiveness, and secondly, by rebuking the other thief? Well, that's right. They're actually, it's, when you look at that episode, um, very analyze it succinctly. Mm. Uh, there is the act of faith by the good thief. But there's also a repentance. He doesn't just mm. simply believe mm. that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He repents, and of course, he does that act of rebuking the other the other mm -hmm. thief. Um, and he does then ask, you know, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So, yeah, the remember me when you come into your kingdom can be extent an extension of the of the faith, but he actually has repented of his sin in addition to believing in Jesus Christ. And then he did that good work of rebuking the mm. bad thief, so to speak. So there was a three elements there of faith, repentance, 
and that good work that he did. And that's all he could do in the circumstance. Indeed, indeed. And uh, uh, this also speaks to another passage that um, our separated brethren will often quote as proof for for faith alone and, and why works don't count. And it's in Romans chapter 10, uh, beginning at verse 9, or um, I'll go even um, partly into eight, uh, quote, the word is near you on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Surely again here, the confessing with our lips is, is something we do. And so it's an action and it, it is essentially a work that is cooperating with faith. Would I be correct in that? Yeah, and that's right. We are cooperating with God's grace. The act of faith is a human action. It, it is a human work. But, of course, it's very dangerous to take that passage and then isolate it because mm. what, again, St Paul is talking about is initial justification. How do we enter into uh sonship daughtership with god through jesus christ by hearing and believing but once we're in the new and eternal covenant of jesus christ once we've accepted jesus christ as lord and savior then we are expected to obey the lord i mean he is lord he does teach he does he has given commands what are those teachings what are those commands uh, I'll give you one, for example. He commands that we be baptized in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit. I, he has commanded that I must obey. I must receive baptism. Again, that's a work. The Salvation Army doesn't have baptism because they consider it to be a work. Then I could read you so many other passages. Yes, Famous please. one just off the top of my head, Matthew 19, 17. Uh, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Mm -hmm. One of those commandments. I mean, in the context, the Jews understood him to mean, of course, the Ten Commandments. But then Christ and later on St. Paul give us a, a clearer understanding of how we obey those Ten Commandments as laws of love. Love God with all your mind, body, heart and soul. Love your neighbour as yourself. That's what we read, essentially, Jesus in his responses to the rich young man and the lawyer that we read about in Mark 10, in Luke 10. Um, Jesus is asked questions. He responds, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, in response to those questions, never says simply faith or faith alone. He actually challenges the person or the persons who are asking those very similar questions, identical questions, and he makes it clear that you must, of course, have faith, even though Jesus doesn't mention that specifically, it's implicit. You must believe and you must live out that belief in works of love uh, because we are meant to, through faith and hope and love, have that relationship with God, but we must also have that relationship with neighbour. And it's quite clear, we know in the Gospels, you can't be saved if you say, I love God but hate my neighbour and don't love your brother or sister, etc. Yeah, and uh, as, as many Perusia world participants know, my one of my favourite books of the Bible is the Revelation to St John, and it's one that uh, I have been asked to, to teach for Perusia study groups, and one I've quite enjoyed teaching 
And one thing we notice as we go through the book of Revelation is how much Jesus talks about our works, the, the letters to the seven churches, our warnings against not doing certain things, but doing other things. And, and it is those who do this and persevere to the end that'll have their robes washed white in the blood of the lamb. And the warnings always say, if you do not do this, if you do not repent, do not return to the works you did at first, then I will come and remove your lampstand. So it seems to me that Revelation uh, is very much a book about faith and works. And uh, this is probably why Martin Luther wanted to tear it out of the Bible, right? Well, let me give you two other quotes from the book of Revelation. Please. Uh, Revelation 20, 12 and 22, 12. Numbers that are easy to remember. 2012, 2212. This is what 2012 says. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Also, another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, by what they had done. So it's a judgment scene. And to say that works have no role in our justification or salvation is completely contradicts what we just read there and completely contradicts what we read in 22.12, which says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense to repay everyone for what he has done. So that's just, they're just two verses there that completely shatter this mantra or maxim of faith alone because they're judgment scenes and it's Christ himself speaking that he expects us to like a tree rooted in the ground here's the analogy the roots are the faith the trunks and the strong branches are the hope and the charity uh, is the fruit mm -hmm. and we must have faith in order to be saved they're the roots without the roots we can't have the fruit without the faith we can't be saved but that faith much must work itself out in love the fruit and by the way there's there are four verses i'm aware of in the new testament that are judgment scenes and each one of them mention the necessity of works the famous one of course is matthew 25 46 to 41 to 46, those who went away into eternal punishment were those who didn't feed the hungry, mm. clothe the naked, visit the sick or those in prison. Those who went to eternal life were those who did those things in faith. And mm. I'll read you one other judgment scene quote. Yes, please. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive good or evil according to what he has done in the body. That's 2 Corinthians 5.10. That's St. Paul, the so-called or supposed father of faith alone, gives mm -hmm. us there a very, very clear passage that when we come to judgment before Christ one-on-one, -on -one, Christ is going to be looking for faith, but he's also going to be looking to what we did in faith. Mm -hmm. And that, I can't help myself, there's that last passage uh, from 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 to 15, the one I normally pull out to support uh, the Catholic dogma of purgatory. We read here, I'll just quote one line, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Hmm. 
So obviously, this is a judgment scene as well. And fire is going to be used to test our works. So how can works be irrelevant to our ultimate salvation if they're going to be tested by fire at our particular judgment, our own personal judgments? Excellent. And, and as you say, that is St. Paul. So let's be clear, when St. Paul is talking about the sort of works that don't save, he is specifically talking about the works of the law of the Old Testament, correct? Well, you can say that. That's part of okay. it. The other types of works that don't save are works that are not motivated by faith or uh -huh. works that are not done when we're in a state of grace. Okay? So works that, yeah, that's right, works that are done when we're not in a state of grace, to be correct here. Okay? So um, I could be an atheist and a great philanthropist. Mm -hmm. They're good works. But are those works meritorious in the eyes of God? Well, not, not according to the textbook Catholicism, mm -hmm. uh, because for works to be meritorious and rewarded by God, they should be done in faith, motivated by faith. And furthermore, if we are to receive that ultimate reward for our works, we should do those works when in a state of grace and friendship with God. If we're doing good works when we're in a state of mortal sin, to use classical Catholic theological terminology, uh, they, we will not get the meritorious, we will not, will not get uh, a merit for those works until we've come back into grace with God. Well, I really wish that, uh, that we would hear this more often in Catholicism and in church, because this is really a, a, quite a good motivation to help us stay in a state of grace and resist sin, surely. Well, absolutely. And um, yeah, it, 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 cer it certainly is because you just feel, look, for example, say you've got a good, healthy Catholic life and you've been doing good things for many years and, and suddenly for whatever reason you might have committed a mortal sin. Well, strictly speaking, uh, if you die in a state of mortal sin, you're going to be damned. You're not going to get the benefit of all any of your works that you did during your lifetime. And you probably think, oh, gosh, you know, uh, well, you know, all that all those years of good works are wasted. Well, yes, up to that point. But if we do come back to God through sacramental confession, for example, or we do perform an act of uh, perfect contrition before we die, then we those merits that were that we earned all those tr that treasure in heaven that we accumulated through our good works prior to the mortal sin will be restored to us. Excellent. Thank you for making that clear. Um, the another objection that a Protestant might throw up at this point in the conversation is one you've actually preempted. Uh, so I'm going to quote directly from the book, Defend the Faith, quote, since all our actions are sinful, they are surely worthless in the eyes of God. Well, that's a statement I have heard, and that's a statement that's rooted in the classical theology, Protestant theology of Luther and Calvin. If, I, if you just let me step back here for a moment, Certainly. why would they say such a thing? Because of their exaggerated, uh, well, their, their understanding of original sin, the impact of original sin, 
in an exaggerated sense. They believe that they believe in original sin, but they believe that it totally depraved humanity, not simply wounded humanity. And as totally depraved beings, we are no better than beasts. Uh, we've got a bonded will. We've got an intellect that cannot know truth. And all our actions are sinful. And if all our actions are sinful, then obviously they can have no part in our justification and salvation. Hence, this dovetails into the maxim of faith alone. But in reality, such a view contradicts scripture. Let's have a look at some scripture verses here. What our Lord says, Matthew 6, 3 to 4, he speaks about when you give alms, that is when you donate money out of charity, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Paraphrasing, do it in secret. Mm -hmm. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. Well, if all our actions are sinful, Mm -hmm. then why are we going to be rewarded for giving alms, donating money to charity? It's not sinful. We can do works in faith, motivated by faith, works of charity that are going to be rewarded by God. He himself chooses to reward us. We don't compel God to reward us. We don't make God a debtor. God wills to reward us because he is loving and gracious in his judgment. And even if our action of donating money to charity might be tainted by a little bit of self-love or whatever, we are still going to be rewarded for it out of God's graciousness. Here's another one. Again, Matthew 6, 19 to 20. Um, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, etc., etc. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. What are these treasures in heaven? Hmm. Jesus is saying, let's do good works in faith, motivated by faith, rightly motivated out of love for neighbor. And when we do those actions, they're recorded in heaven. And that's the treasure that's being built up in heaven. And we will receive from God uh, our reward in proportion to our merits on earth out of God's love and graciousness when he judges. So how can we build up treasures in heaven if all our actions are sinful? Let's see if we've got one more quote here I could Mm. grab. Yeah, okay. Well, I'll give you two more. Oh, no, three more. I, I can't help myself. I'm very excited tonight. Uh, Matthew 10, go for it, please. The more, the better. <laughs> okay. Matthew 10, 41 to 42. Jesus talks about those who even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple. So if a follower of his even gives a cup of cold water to a disciple of Jesus because he's a disciple of Jesus. I say to you, he will not lose his reward. So a simple giving of a cup of water, we will be rewarded to it if we did it out of right motives, out of charity. So again, how can um, our actions all be sinful if we will be rewarded even for giving a cup of cold water to a disciple? And when Jesus praises the poor widow in Mark 12, 42 to 44, who put in the two mites into the treasury in the temple. She put in everything she had. And what would, what did Jesus, Jesus praised her for doing that. She put in more than all those who were contributing to the treasury. 
Again, she's being praised for an action. If her all our actions are sinful, then how could Jesus praise that action? Mm. And then we've got uh, Acts 10, verses 3 to 4, the Roman centurion Cornelius, when the angel appears to him on the rooftop when he's beginning his prayer, says to him, your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. So he's a believer. He's not yet Christian. He's a proselyte. He's a Gentile convert to Judaism. He's saying prayers. He's doing good works, donating money to charity. They're recorded in heaven. How mm. can any works be recorded in heaven if Luther and Calvin are right and all our actions are sinful? And to finish off, um, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same again from the Lord, Ephesians 6, 8. Again, there's St. Paul saying very clear that whatever good works we do, we will receive a reward. So again, how can we receive a reward for works of all our works as sinful? Absolutely. Um, and thank you for all of those. And of course, there are yet more quotes in the book, Defend the Faith. So if you are at all interested in Catholic apologetics and, and or simply want to learn your faith a little better, please pick up a copy of this book. Now, um, again, a, a Protestant at this point in the conversation might um, be, you know, really stumped on this issue and might uh, still be um reluctant to hear what you're saying they might be saying um but robert what you're talking about is is sanctification it's it's not it's not justification it's not saving um the ten commandments belong to the old law a law that advocated justification through works faith replaces works of the law so would they be belaboring the point at this point in the conversation well the, the core of your question is the claim that the Ten Commandments uh, belong to the old law. They don't belong to the new law of Christ. They're not required by Christ uh, of any Christian in order to be saved. But uh, again, uh, when we look through the scriptures carefully, the New Testament scriptures, we have a clear, I, I can identify at least three clear examples where Jesus himself makes it clear that he requires of his believers to be obeying the commandments. The first mm -hmm. one I already mentioned, Matthew 19, 17. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Mm -hmm. So it's very clear there that we need to do uh, obey the commandments in order to be saved because enter life means get to heaven. But I must stress here, we don't obey the commandments simply as works done in a perfunctory manner, ticker box exercise, um, etc. We we are obeying the commandments as acts of love. The first three commandments relating to God, we obey the commandments. We must love God above all things, mind, body, heart, and soul. And the next seven commandments relate to love of neighbor. So we obey the commandments as laws of love. And the, that's the reality. Faith does not alone save us. We know that. I mean, I can go back to James chapter 2 where he says, um, man is not justified by faith alone. And he 
calls the person who claims that we can be saved by faith alone without works as a foolish man. Mm -hmm. and, and again, St. James says, faith without works is dead. And if I, at the risk of going back to the previous lesson, um, you know, we have St. Paul, Romans 2, 6. Let me find what he says there. He says, um, for we, he will render to every man according to his works. Mm. All right. Now I can keep going here, but I won't go off on that tangent uh, mm. too extreme. What's the other one I can refer to when it comes to the need to obey the commandments? I referred to Mark 10 previously when we had the rich young man. Mm -hmm. He knelt before Jesus and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Mm -hmm. there's the question we don't need to debate this we've been debating this for 500 and um uh five years and um what's it today and 23 days mm -hmm. since luther nailed the his 95 theses on that door in the church on the church in wittenberg here jesus gives the answer mm -hmm. and he, part of his answer is you know the commandments, do not mm. kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honour your father and your mother. Basically, Jesus says there to, in, uh, to inherit eternal life, we need, of course, to believe in him, his salvific work on the cross, and we need to obey the commandments because the Ten Commandments are not positive laws of God that are only for a particular time, for a particular purpose, uh, for a particular people. They are expressions of the natural law that's inbuilt in all human beings, namely do good and avoid evil. And that law is always applicable. So I've mentioned now uh, Mark 10, and we have the same question being asked of Jesus. Uh, and a very similar answer given by him is recorded by Luke in chapter 10, verses 25 to 28. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Now, here Jesus gives a slightly different answer. You shall love the Lord your God is the answer of the, of the lawyer. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you have answered right. Do this and you will live. So we see there's three examples of Jesus mm. insisting uh, on obedience to the Ten Commandments as necessary for salvation. An obedience that's built on faith in Christ and that's uh, a living out of the commandments as laws of love. And this also speaks to the statement of Jesus as well, that he comes not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right? That one not, not one iota of the law will be washed away, right? That's correct. And when it comes to the Ten Commandments, uh, they're still in place, but, and, but Jesus gives that, uh, that special emphasis uh, towards the Ten Commandments as laws of love, and then he builds on that with the Beatitudes. I like to look at the Beatitudes uh, uh, as Jesus sharpening the pencil, uh, raising us to another level of spirituality as part of the need to purify the human mind and the human heart. 
Um, you know, we're going to obey the Ten Commandments sometimes in a perfunctory manner, but Jesus wants us to obey them, as I said already multiple times, as it, it, with that right spirit of love. Wonderful. And so I, I imagine that that is the, 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 basically the answer you would give to someone who would say that Catholics try to buy their way into heaven. So it, uh, is it possible that there are some Catholics out there who think they can buy their way into heaven? And is what you just said um, the answer to that statement? Well, I first heard that accusation back in 1986, and I was watching um, a Pentecostal preacher. Um, what's that famous one that Tim Staples knew? Um, he fell into a terrible sex scandal afterwards. Yes. Anyway. I felt he, uh, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he made that accusation of his own congregation. He said of his own congregation, you're like Catholics. You think you can buy your way into heaven. And I was rather stunned by that. Um, and so Jimmy Swaggart is the fellow. Jimmy Swaggart was the great preacher who made that accusation. But what's, if there are Catholics who think that you can buy your way into heaven, then they're not very good Catholic. They certainly don't know their theology. But there would be some people, sadly, who may be generous with donating money to the church or good causes, which is wonderful, but maybe other aspects of their life, their moral life, uh, is not yet fully you know, in place. There's not that integrity there. Uh, and they need to be assisted to attain that integrity, that consistency in their spiritual lives. But what's really going on here um, is Christians doing works implicitly in obedience to Christ's teachings, uh, because we all have that instinct that we should be doing good things. Now, I will refer you to the famous... Um, parable of Jesus in Matthew 25, 13 to 30, it's the parable of the talents. Right? Now, Jesus gives two talents to one person and five talents to another, and then he sends them off. So this is basically uh, applies to all believers in Christ, that he gives us all talents, and we're expected to account for the talents and the graces he has given us. So one day, we're going to come up before him in judgment one-on-one. -on -one, and he's going to ask us the questions, well, what did you do with the gifts that I gave you? And there's also that other fellow who got one talent. So mm -hmm. to paraphrase here, the person who got two talents came back and said, Jesus, here's your two talents and two talents more. Your two talents made four talents. Mm -hmm. The other one who got five talents came back and said, Jesus, here's your five talents plus five talents more and gave back to Jesus ten talents. And Jesus praises those two with the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Are they trying to buy their way into heaven? No, they were just being fruitful in faith. They um, responded to the graces that God gave them. And the gifts that God gave them, and they are fruitful in faith, and they are rewarded accordingly. What about the one who got one talent? Oh, I was afraid I buried it. Here's your one talent back, Jesus. Not returning two, but one. He was condemned. 
been a faithless and slothful servant. And that one talent was taken away from him and given to the one who had uh, originally five talents, now 10. And what happens to that worthless servant? He's cast into the outer darkness. So that servant that who received one talent is a person who has faith in Jesus, but it's not fruitful in good works and works of charity, condemned. Okay? Thank you. Yes. Into the outer darkness. And yeah. I could repeat the whole of what everything I've just said now um, with respect to another parable very similar, which we read in Luke 19, 15 to 19, where those who were given five pounds and mm -hmm. 10 pounds came back to Jesus doubling five to 10, 10 to 20. And they received rewards of jurisdiction over five cities and 10 cities proportionately. So not only did these Christians, and not only were these Christians fruitful in their faith, but they were fruitful to different degrees and they received proportionately different levels of reward in heaven. Hmm. That's symbolized by the jurisdiction over five cities and to the other jurisdiction over 10 cities. Thank you. Now, of course, speaking of talents, uh, one, one might argue back that there's another parable in which the workers who received to work, who turned up in the field to work at the beginning of the day, received one talent and so to the workers at the end of the day, which would seem to imply that everyone's equal in heaven. And what you're yeah. saying seems to imply that there are some who are higher than others in heaven. So what would you say to that rebuttal? Okay, let's first look at the, the parable that, that you just mentioned there. That could relate to the salvation of the nations. The ones who come to work early at the beginning to work for the master at the beginning, they would be the Hebrews who then become the remnant people of the Jews. Then the subsequent workers that joined into the a field, worked on the farm at different hours, different intervals, uh, who came in at nine o'clock, then midday, then three o'clock in the afternoon, then right be one hour before the end of the day's work, they would be subsequent nations converted to Christ in the centuries that followed and throughout the history of Christianity. And they would be all entitled to heaven. Okay? That's one interpretation. The other interpretation here is that this is about the generosity of God, that you can get people who've been faithful all their lives and they're rewarded. They receive the reward they were promised. And there can be dead deathbed confessions, that person who converts one hour before they die. They will also go to heaven. But it doesn't necessarily, yes, and they get paid the same in the parable. But I wouldn't use that as a proof text to um, seal the deal for the Protestant position here. Of course, the Protestant position is that everyone in heaven is equal because everyone, when they come to faith in Christ, are simply covered spiritually with the merits of Christ. 
And when they die, what Christ sees is his own merits with respect to each one of the true believers. And since the merits of Christ are equal for everyone, then everyone in heaven is equal. But again, I can refer to various verses in Scripture. Firstly, there's an acknowledgement by Christ that different Christians um, uh, perform more generously for God than others while on earth. And I've just read you one already when I referred to these parables um, about the talents and the pounds. You know, one was given five, they came back with 10, and one was given 10 and came back with 20, and one was given two and came back with four. One was given jurisdiction over five cities and another over 10 cities. Okay, so we see there that different Christians throughout their lives uh, uh, perform more good works than others. We're not all equal in how generous we are uh, for God. And again, Matthew 13, 23 tells us this. We have the sower of the seed and the seed he throws into the good soil. And it says here, one yields a hundredfold, another 16, another 30. <laughs> so they're all different Christians. Um, who have been uh, different in their fruitfulness during their Christian lives. 30 is good, 60 is very good, 100 is colossal, that heroic sanctity that we recognize through our canonization processes. But the reality is Luke 6, 37 and 38 tells us that re records these words of Christ, for the measure you give will be the measure you get back. Mm. Right, and elsewhere, we can go back to some of these earlier quotes. Um, you sh each shall receive his wages according to his labor, 1 Corinthians 3 8. Mm. Okay, uh, what else do we see here? Okay, we've already read that one. 1 Corinthians 15 40 to 42 speaks about the glorified body and the of the resurrected just at the end of the world and he St Paul uses an analogy here we he speaks about the he compares the glorified body with the elements that we see in the heavens there's one glory of the sun another the glory of the moon and another the glory of the stars for star differs from star in glory mm. so that's that's an analogy to tell us about how the glorified saints in heaven will differ like the stars, one from the other in glory. And what's the reason for the differentiation of glory among the saints in heaven? It, the differentiation comes from their meritorious works while alive. The more you do for God on earth while you're alive, the greater your glory in heaven. That is common sense. That is the justice of God. That is what scripture tells us. So how connected then are these meritorious works with virtue? Well, what are virtues? I mean, we've got, mm. we've got theological virtues, we've got moral virtues, we've got many virtues, um, and they're all good works. You know, mm -hmm. faith, hope, and love of theological virtues, temperance, fortitude, justice, prudence, uh, the moral virtues, and there are many other virtues uh, by the hundreds. And these are all things that are pleasing to God when done in faith and done with right intention, with purity of heart, and God rewards us. So that's why we paint in our artwork, 
classical Catholic Orthodox artwork over the centuries, all the saints in halos, because that, that's supposed to represent the shining glory of the saints in heaven, and particularly in their resurrected body. But that shining uh, varies according to our merits, our gracious merits done while we're alive. So simply by increasing or chasing virtue and resisting vice and temptation, we are automatically doing these works of merit. Is that correct? Exactly right. So, you know, we sometimes, sometimes might think, okay, what are good works? And, you know, they're actual actions that are mm -hmm. visible, that benefit others. But, you know, you could be sitting down just quietly by yourself and you get a temptation and the temptation against purity, for example, and, and you resist that. Well, that's a good work. Mm. That's an act of your will saying no to sin, no mm. to the temptation. That is done in faith, rightly intentioned. You'll be rewarded for that little resistance. And this is why someone like little Trez of Lisieux, who was a cloistered Carmelite nun, um, can be an absolute giant and, in fact, a doctor of the church because she attempted to do small things with great love. Yes. Yes, exactly right. And that's, mm. they're wonderful inspirations for us ordinary Christians. Mm. You know, we, we read about the lives of the saints and we, and we're inspired by those lives and we just wonder well, what can, what great things can we do for God? Well, maybe you can do great things for God. Mm. Cruising media is a great work for God, but we're all called to do great things for God but they might not be great in the eyes of the world or ordinary other Christians, but they are great in God's eyes because they're done with great love, uh, great faith. They might be small and unseen, but there's still works done in faith out of love. And the little way is a beautiful theology or spirituality for the ordinary Christian to keep in mind that everything we do in faith out of love, right, uh, is pleasing to God and we, we will be rewarded for such. Wonderful. You've given us so much food for thought tonight, Robert. Uh, can't thank you enough. Um, I would like to um, finish up, though, by asking if the church fathers had anything to say about these meritorious works. Yes, um, the Friend of Faith always has, or well, most chapters, has a list of church fathers at the end. <laughs> I chose the one on St. Jerome against... Jovinian to emphasize that um, there are different rewards for Christians according to their different merits while alive. Um, let's have a look at, I'll just grab one randomly here without looking and just put my <laughs> finger down and I've pointed to um, well, let's Church Father about, Roulette, thank you. Excellent. Yes, yes. St. <laughs> Cyprian of Carthage, a favorite of mine. Oh, yes, Cyprian please. of Carthage wrote this around the year 253, works and almsgiving. You who are a matron rich and wealthy, anoint not your eyes with the antimony of the devil, but with the collyrium of Christ. I'm not sure what collyrium is. <laughs> so that you may at last come to see God when you have merited before God, both by your works and by your manner of living. So again, mm -hmm. it's an exhortation by St. Cyprian for us to, be doing good works uh, for God in faith and will be rewarded for such. 
And that manner of living that he's referring to is what you've been talking about, right? That pursuit of virtue, that obedience to Christ and all that he taught, right? That's correct. Exactly. Right. How, how much do the sacraments play in this um, economy of salvation, Robert? Well, see, look, sacraments are works, but you know, let's not fall into the misrepresentation that we sadly see in some anti-Catholic literature. We don't, we're not saved simply by receiving sacraments, mm -hmm. as if they're an alternative source of salvation uh, uh, in opposition to Christ. Uh, not at all. They are fountains of Christ's grace for us. And we access the sacraments in order to receive the grace that we need to come firstly uh, through baptism, um, into be incorporated into Christ through baptism and to receive that initial, initial infusion of sanctifying grace and have that augmented with confirmation. So we can be adult Christians resisting the temptations that an adult faces more regularly than children do. And then we get the daily bread of the Eucharist to help us walk in faith. And then we have the pit stop of penance, as I call it, when we have our crash in the race of life and we need to be repaired. Um, and of course, we have holy matrimony as a sacrament that will give us the graces we need to live faithfully that new state of life. Same with holy order. Okay, it is a sacrament. It's a, it's a, we've come into a new state of life and God gives us the grace. He calls us to that state and he'll give us the grace to live out that state faithfully. And then we, of course, we have the final sacrament of anointing of the sick to, to assist us in those last moments as we are about to cross the threshold into eternity to be forgiven of our sins and resist the last assaults of the devil. So we don't look at the sacraments as works that we do mechanically as if we just do those works and we, we receive salvation accordingly as if they're separate and apart from Christ but really as I said already they're the channels through which we receive the Christ's grace to do the good works to remain faithful and persevere because we can't do it by ourselves. I should read the quote of St Augustine here to finish. Um, what merit then does a man have before grace? by which he might receive grace when our every good merit is produced in us only by the by grace and when God crowning our merits crowns nothing else but his own gifts to us so we can't do anything ourselves without me you can do nothing so every good work we do is really our free response to God's grace that came first that inspired those good works and God then crowns us for works that he inspired. That's St. Augustine. Wonderful. Thank you very much for that. And I might just finish now with the quote you've given us from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, paragraph 2008. Would you like to read that one, Robert? I'm happy to do it. Uh, how about you do it? Uh, I All think right. I've done enough talking this evening, so <laughs> happy for you to read it. I'll, I'll finish with the Catechism then. Paragraph 2008. The merit of man before God in the Christian life arises from the fact that God has freely chosen to associate man with the work of his grace. The fatherly action of God is first on his own initiative and then follows man's free acting through his collaboration so that the merit of good works is to be attributed 
in the first place to the grace of God, then to the faithful. Man's merit, moreover, itself is due to God, for his good actions proceed in Christ from the predispositions and assistance given by the Holy Spirit." End quote. Dr. Robert Haddad, we've covered a lot this evening, and once more, I can't thank you enough for this project, and I can't thank you enough for your time this evening. Thank you. And thank you, Matthew, and thank you again to Perusia for the, all the great work you do uh, in addition to this great series. Thank you very much, and God bless. Awesome. This is Defend the Faith Live. That's enough from us for now, so farewell and God bless. Thanks for listening to the Perusia Podcast. If you've enjoyed these podcasts, please share with your family and friends. And for more information about everything Perusia, please visit our website at perusiamedia.com.